Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and thanks for joining us for our latest episode. Edward Lear asked in 1870, will there be anything worth seeing in Corsica? Well, (laughs) yes, there is um, plenty to see in Corsica. With stunning coastline and awe-inspiring mountains, Corsica is an island full of delights for walkers and trekkers. From coastal day walks to the challenging GR20, or one of many shorter treks on the island, Corsica offers brilliant opportunities to suit all types of walkers. Our two guests have extensive experience of both guidebook writing and trekking around the world and on Corsica. Paddy Dillon is the author of the GR20 guidebook and Gillian Price is the author of Cicerone's new guidebook to short treks on Corsica. Hi Paddy, hi Gillian, thanks for joining us today. Okay Paddy, over to you. Okay, yeah, the GR20, it has a reputation of being Europe's toughest waymarked trail. Waymarked in that there are abundant markers to follow. You can certainly find tougher trails by not following a waymark route. Um, but as far as waymark routes go, I haven't found anything tougher than the GR20. And all trails have to start somewhere. The GR20 starts in this lovely old town. You could either call it a small town or a large village, but the thing about Kalanzana is you won't see another settlement of this size on the GR20. And even then, it's only got one supermarket. If you need anything, this is your chance to buy it. You won't be walking for more than a couple of hours before you'll be faced with bare rock, very steep bare rock, maybe chains dangling off it, you are expected to scramble. If you're carrying a huge pack and you're scrambling in a way that you've not dealt with before, if you're a bit uncertain about grappling with rock or dangling on chains, it's much better to get some experience before you go to the GR20 than to try and pick it up as you walk. The reputation of the GR20 is such that they say that about 90% of all who give up the GR20 do so on the first day. So other people will drop out at various stages, but the bulk of people who drop out do so on the first day when they realise they've bitten off more than they can chew. There is a trekking season. It's not a good idea to be doing the GR20 when there's snow and ice on the ground, so don't start at the end of May start somewhere well into June, July, August, September. By the time October rolls around, the weather is definitely deteriorating. So there is a season. It's high summer or nothing on the GR20 as far as an ordinary trekker would be concerned. The refuges, unlike alpine refuges, which are like miniature hotels halfway up the mountain, Corsican refuges are extremely basic, very, very basic indeed. And basically everything you get is on those little blackboards by the door at this particular refuge. There will be a menu for the meal in the evening, which will be quite expensive. But if you want the meal cooked for you, it saves you carrying everything up the hill. And then there'll be a little list of very, very few provisions that you can buy if you haven't brought anything with you. As far as camping goes, it's behind the refuge and it's literally on bare rock, boulders and gravel. So very, very basic very harsh conditions, really. Um, So you're not only doing a long, hard walk, you're also expected to sort of suffer a little bit in the evening as well. Not wanted to put you off, 
thousands of people walk this route every summer and enjoy it immensely. So the suffering is part of it. When you're high up in the mountains, the route is marked with little red and white markers will keep you on course throughout this journey. If you see a red and white marker, aim for it. If you haven't seen a red and white marker for 10 or 15 minutes, you've probably left the route. Go back and find the red and white marker and you'll be absolutely fine. As far as route finding goes, looking at that terrain and this terrain, you need to watch where you're putting your feet. So this is the Tour Ponche, the Leaning Tower. You will come across this on day four, which is now the toughest day on the toughest trail in Europe, where you're expected to climb an immense distance uphill to a very high point on a ridge. And then you still have the option of climbing Monte Cinto, the highest mountain in Corsica. That's going to cost you another hour and a half to two hours on a day which is already long, hard and difficult. And again, if you go too early in the season... This could be covered in snow and ice, in which case I would advise don't do it at all. You know, wait for the peak summer period when the snow and ice is gone. The descent is endless. It just goes down and down and down. And every time you think the next refuge is going to be around the corner, it isn't. It's a long way down. The mountain in the background there is Paglia Orba, which I've climbed once. And I'm not joking, I will never climb it again. One of the things I've done with my guidebook is I give the main route. I also give several alternative routes, as well as links to nearby villages for people who just want to bail out or have a change of scenery. Plus, I give the ascent of six peaks along the way, of which Paglia Orba is one. But Paglia Orba is almost as much as I can bear. You know, everything you get hold of breaks away in your hand. So it's a, quite a dangerous little climb. This is the way down from Paglia Orba and its neighbouring peak of Caputafanatu coming down into the, the valley. There are some easier stretches. You can see the path there is absolutely flat, gentle, no obstructions whatsoever. And this is going from a burgery here, which is like a summer farm, to a refuge. But then it's always back up into the mountains. No matter where your refuge is, you will be climbing back up into the mountains nearly every day. Again, note the little red and white markers which keep you on course. Absolutely do not deviate from them. And when you get to the Refuge de Petropiana, I have so many alternatives for you. You can spend an extra night here and climb the mountain Monte Rotondo from this point. You can go on the main route, which goes down into a valley on the left-hand side, or you can follow an alternative route, which climbs over the mountains on the right-hand side, and when you've done all that, the following day, you have an option to climb Monte Doro if you don't mind some very serious scrambling on the way. Otherwise, you will be going down through a valley to get to the midpoint of the GR20, which is Visavona. It has been described as a train station with two pubs. Um, that's fair description. There's also a hotel and a campsite. And that is the biggest settlement you will reach if you stay on the main route. So this is the point where you reprovision you maybe take a day off, put your feet up, attend to any aches and pains you may have gathered. And because of the fact there's a train station there, some people say enough is enough. Where does the train go? Well, it goes to Ajaccio. It goes down to Pontileccio, where you have a choice of going to Calvi or Bastia. Um, so you're right in the centre of what passes for the rail network in Corsica at this point. The southern stage is reputed to be easier, but it's easier in that it's not as difficult as the northern part of the route. 
So this is like you've done the toughest part of the toughest trail in Europe. Now you're just coming down a little step onto something slightly easier. So when people say it's easier, they do not mean it's easy. This is looking back from uh, Boca Palmento towards Monte Doro. So Visavona is way, way down in the bottom in the forested valley. I do give alternatives and I do give a sense of extra peaks. So this is an alternative to a largely forested route, which runs at a reasonably low level. Um, I take this route up onto Monte Renoso instead and bring you down to rejoin the main route on the way to Col de Verde. I'm quite good at giving people alternatives. If they want to do more, I'll give them more. If they want to do less, I'll give them something easier. And when you're coming along this ridge, there's a, a gap in the middle, uh, Boca di Laparo, where the cloud tends to seep through. So beware of the fact you could be up on a peak in brilliant sunshine, down into the cloud, back up into the sunshine. But do keep an eye on the weather from this point, because it is important. If there's a thunderstorm, you definitely do not want to be on top of Monte Alcudina because it's terribly exposed and all the lightning bolts are probably going to land there. They took that off the main route and took, made a circuitous um, alternative route, which then became the main route. So there's now two routes, if you like, a direct route that risks putting you on Monte Alcadena in the afternoon when the thunderstorms are there, and a more circuitous route, which means you're coming up this way onto Monte Alcadena in the late morning when it's more likely to be like this, sunny, clear, no risk of thunderstorms whatsoever. So the fact that they're putting an extra day onto the route is actually going to work in your benefit if the weather's looking a bit dodgy. Always keep an eye on the weather. The last part of the route um, coming through to Bavella, you have a choice of going down the valley, which I do not recommend, even though that's the main route. I recommend what's called the Alpine variant up amongst these rock towers, uh, the Aiguille de Bavella, which is absolutely stunning. And in fact, for all the it looks like a serious steep climb and a lot of rock will probably get you to Bavella maybe 20 minutes earlier than the main route will. This is the last campsite or refuge at uh, the Refuge de Paliri. Usually it's good weather up there. You're getting so far south now. The mountains are still incredibly rocky, incredibly scenic, but are definitely going to a lower level. And as you keep going, you know, you'll be literally dropping down stage after stage. You, you do very little climbing. You'll cross this waterfall and then climb. And th the next descent you make will take you down into the village of Conca. And it's all over. That would be about 190 kilometres, maybe 120 miles. But it will take 16 days unless you start doubling up stages. Do not set out with a plan to double up stages, but see how the trek goes before you start doubling up stages. Um, but one way or the other, it's a stunning walk. Thousands of people complete it each year. A number of people, it does go wrong for them and they do have to bail out, unfortunately. But with a lot of forethought, especially study the guidebook, be aware of all your alternatives. It can be an absolutely stunning walk. So that's my presentation on the GR20 finished. If that's terrified you a little bit, please listen very carefully to Gillian as she's got some easier treks that you might be interested in. So I'd like to entice you onto some of the other walking routes that Corsica has to offer without suffering. We're still talking about long distance treks, not day walks, but these are slightly shorter than the GR20. 
But before I get onto the actual routes, I'd just like to point out a couple of what I consider the great advantages of these routes. The fact is that each stage ends up in a village and all the villages have accommodation. And mostly they're those wonderful French inventions, the gîte d'état. And this translates as a walker's hostel. Now that means a bed for the night. It could be in a shared dormitory or it could be in a private room. You usually have the choice. And there's something called a restaurant. So somebody's there to cook you dinner, usually a wonderful dinner, three courses, and they'll get you breakfast in the morning as well. The charges range from about 20 euros for a bed to about 45, 50 euros for half board, which means your accommodation, dinner and your breakfast. You don't need to carry camping gear or a sleeping bag, which means a lightweight rucksack. The island's actually 183 kilometres long and 83 kilometres wide, and there are mark routes snaking their way from top to bottom. In my guidebook, Short Treks on Corsica, I've outlined five routes ranging from two days to 11 days in length. And it's actually quite easy to combine them and make even longer treks. So the book gives you the chance to actually go for a whole month's worth of wandering along. First up then is the Sentier du Douanier. This is the customs officer's way and it goes around Cap Corse, the northernmost tip of Corsica. It's quite short and sweet. It's only 24 kilometers long and it lasts for two days, but you have to start somewhere. It starts off at Port de Centuri, which also happens to be a renowned lobster fishing port, and it rambles along the coast on good paths. Hopefully when you go, you'll find these lovely white sea lilies, which actually bloom at sea level as well as in the mountains. The path climbs around headlands and there are lots of these old watchtowers and it drops into some fishing hamlets where you'll be staying as well. And on the second day, there's no lack of these beautiful coves and beaches. So you definitely need your swing costume on this one. Now, the next trek is probably my favourite. It's called the Mare e Monti, the Sea and Mountains. And it actually starts at Calenzana together with the GR20. That's on the west coast. And it runs south for 10 days and 122 kilometres. Here too, there are some exciting swimming spots along the way. This is the Fangu Gorge in the second stage. And it runs through red porphyry rock. Further along that same river, you have the first of the wonderful Genovese stone bridges that you get to cross on this trek. And then heading up to the coast again, the Maria Monte drops in at Duralata. Now, this is a very special fishing hamlet that you can only get to on foot or by boat because there isn't a road in there. And there are two very hospitable gîtes d'étape that you have to choose from, the Comoran Voyageur. Otherwise, there's the Cabane du Berger, which has its lovely restaurant right on the beach, and you get to stay in little cabins, and they serve a very nice fish soup. Then it's goodbye to the sea and the start of climbing inland up through these marvellous pine forests. And you drop in at these lovely quiet villages like Otter, perched on its mountainside. And here again, there are two lovely sheep to choose from. When you leave Otter the next day, you have another lovely old stone bridge, remarkably intact. And this one leads up a valley on a beautiful old paved mule track. Climbing, of course, they never seem to be on a level. And this concludes at the village of Evisa. 
Now, at this point, you're actually only two stages before the end of the Mari Monte trek. But what I suggest here is that you slot into another long distance route. This is the Mare, Mare Nord, the Sea to Sea North Trek. And this crosses the whole of Corsica from Cargesi in the west over to Moriani Plage in the east. This one takes 11 days and it's 148 kilometres. It leads up the beautiful Ayatoni River Valley where there are some more inviting rock pools if you need another dip. And then it climbs into the central mountain area where you're going to intersect the GR20. It stops off at Castel de Vergio. Now here, you're in the shade of the Paglia Orba, which is one of the highest mountains on Corsica, and I've just discovered it's Paddy's favourite peak as well. After the central mountainous area, you head back down again, and this time down the Tavignano Valley, another lovely old paved mule track, and this leads down to Corte, right in the centre of the island. Corte used to be the capital of Corsica before they moved it to Ayacho. On the other side of that valley, you cross slightly lower mountains, let's call them hills here, and stay at little villages and cross quite a few streams as well. And this is another one of the Chic d'Etat. This is a council-owned one. They're very cosy and they serve meals and petit déjeuner on the terrace in the morning. The last stages of the Mare Mare Nord can be quite solitary, but you're really getting away from it all here. And then at the very end, there's your reward, a lovely, long, sandy beach. The last two routes I've described in the book are in the south of the island. Starting on the east coast at Porto Vecchio, there's the coast-to-coast trek, the Mare Mare Sud. This one's relatively short, only 75 kilometres long, and it only takes five days. So it actually fits very nicely into a one-week holiday, and it's very popular with the French as well. Hopefully you'll get better weather than we did. We started walking in snow in late May one year. You usually spend lovely days walking through the Maquis with its lovely flowering shrubs like these rock roses. And other days you're walking through olive groves. Here you're in the centre of the island, crossing farmland and looking up to the Agueda Bavella Mountains, which Paddy was talking about. And you can detour to them as well if you like. There's a surprising number of rivers along the way and a great variety of bridges, old and new. The villages are mostly rural in flavour and the accommodation is excellent. This sheet occupies a converted oil press. As you reach the last stage, not far in from the west coast at Burgu, instead of concluding the trek, I recommend you pick up another route, the Mare e Monti Sud, the Sea and Mountains. This one leads north from the Gulf of Valincu and it connects with the Gulf of Ayacho. And here we're talking five days and 66 kilometres. It's usually considered the easiest of the long distance routes and it's an excellent one to start with. You're taken through Mediterranean woodland and over hills and you drop into some beautiful sandy bays. In springtime, if you're lucky, you'll catch these prickly pear cactus flowers bursting open. This is Porto Polo with one of its seafront cafes. They're always attempting detour before the next climb over a headland. And this one descends to what I consider one of the Trek Highlands. It's Kupabia Bay. It's absolutely stunning. Unfortunately, there's no accommodation here, but you can't have everything. And then moving inland, the route follows old lanes leading on through villages 
and the concluding day is a long scenic descent to Porticho and the walk ends right on the beachfront. So all you need to do here is enjoy a drink or catch the ferry over to Ayacho. It's a great way to finish. So I hope I've inspired you to go on some slightly easier, slightly shorter treks. And thank you. Thank you, Gillian. That that was lovely. Quite different to Paddy's presentation. And I can see why you are a guidebook writer, because your advice seems to be every time you finish a walk, quickly find another route and continue walking, <laughs> which <laughs> seems to be very appropriate. <laughs> I have a swim first, though. I have a swim first and a bite to eat. Yeah, lovely. For a 25% discount on any of the Cicerone Walking and Trekking on Corsica guidebooks, you can use the code CORSICA25 at the checkout on the Cicerone website. That's CORSICA25. Both Paddy and Gillian have contributed many articles for Cicerone Extra, the online magazine, so it's worth having a look at those as well. I think what struck me with both of those presentations was just the diversity of walking that you can get on a pretty small island. The GR20 is a challenging route for very experienced people. But then the route that you started talking about, Gillian, the Santiago de Duanier, what a great place to start if you're a strong walker, but maybe you haven't done any overnight trips. That just seemed like a really lovely beginner's trek. And then you've got all the coastal walking and the forests and the rivers and then the high mountains and the scrambling. So, yeah, what what an incredible island. Paddy, what would you say about people that maybe underestimate the GR20? Well, it's it's hard with any route to actually know in advance if you're if you're up to the, the challenge. But with the GR20, when people keep saying and keep hammering it home that it's a tough trek and that you need to grapple with the rock, it's not rock climbing, but you do need to get hold of that rock and you do need to be on some very steep and exposed slopes. You know, the, the idea would be is to read up about it and to take note of things that may concern you. If you don't have a head for heights, do not go on the GR20. You know, if you are not fit and agile, do not go on the GR20. But if you do have a head for heights, if you are, you know, sounding wind and limb, then by all means, uh, have a go at it. But walk within your limits. You know, don't try and burn yourself out on the first day. It can be steep. It can be incredibly hot. You may drink all your water far too soon and you can't get a refill for the next three or four hours. You know, just approach it with care. But a lot of people think, you know, when they look at, say, my distances and I say, oh, it's uh, six kilometers and it's going to take you six hours. They think that's a misprint. It's not. When you get there, it'll still be six kilometres, but it may take you seven or eight hours because the terrain is just so unforgiving. And yet, you know, I say it's unforgiving. It's still passable. Thousands of people manage to do it every single year. And even though it can be a struggle for most of those people, an, an intense struggle, when they finish, they honestly are so glad that they've done it. And quite often, if you just sit down and take in the scenery that's around you, you wouldn't want to be anywhere else at that moment. But yeah, it's it's easy to underestimate any route, but don't do it with the GR20. 
One of the comments has said, Gillian, that they haven't ever heard of any other multi-day hikes on Corsica. And it was just the GR20 is a bit of a headline. So it is nice to be able to promote that there are some of these other walks and some really, really well-established walks as well, aren't they? They've been around for a while. Yes, yes. And something else I like about them is the fact that because you're staying in villages, you have contact with the local people and you're bringing in work there because most of the sheets are um, the hostels are owned by the local councils who get someone local to work there for the summer. So I'm not saying the villages don't have anyone living in them, but you are bringing in more life and work. And I think that's really important, too. One thing that Patty mentions as well in his book is that when you're doing the GR20, you can sometimes feel like there's a disconnect between you and the history and the culture of Corsica. So presumably when you're staying in the villages, you're absorbing much more of that. And another thing you really like, Gillian, in all of your guidebooks, I think anyone that has done a a Gillian walk will know how keen you are on making sure we're very well aware of the food options en route. (laughs) Well, in fact, one of the Girolata, that little um, fishing village that you can only walk or boat to, the first time we stayed there, I distinctly remember we stayed at the cormorant sheet and everything that we had for dinner, they'd either caught or made themselves. And we had things like, um, what's it called in English? The strawberry fruit, the, the little round. Um, Arbustier. Yes. And they collected the berries and made jam with it. It was lovely. So there were things like that. And then um, you get fish soup a lot, which is wonderful. And then lots of meat in there. Oh, and then, of course, you've got lots of local beer happening now. And that's very interesting. Other things to drink that's not not wine and beer. How easy is it to find water, Patty, when you're in that high route? Well, I would say it was easy because I know where the water is and I know what my options are for the entire route. But for someone who's going there the first time, that's why it's in the guidebook. Basically, you get water at every single refuge and usually some point halfway through the day, but by no means always. So, you know, read up before you leave a water point. You need to know where the next water point is. And if I say, you know, there's a lovely spring gushing water halfway through the day, you can guarantee it will be there. If I say it sometimes dries up, then assume it has dried up. Take as much water as you can carry. And if it's in full flow, you're fine. If it's dried up, at least you've still got some water. But it is important in dry, arid mountains like that to stay hydrated. You're going to be climbing and putting a lot of effort into your ascents and descents. You could be sweating and you need to replace the water. And if you stop for something to eat and it's it's dry bread or, you know, very chewy meat or a particularly harsh type of cheese, having water to wash it down makes all the difference. We've got another question about the coast to coast walks, Gillian. How easy is it to book the accommodation and how important is it that you need to pre-book it? Oh, um, well, I hardly pre-book anything. I tend to go maybe two days at a time. No, not terribly difficult, I would say. I mean, lots of places have email. I tend to phone them. I tend to walk in the shoulder seasons, early spring and then later on. I I wouldn't go in midsummer, but I've never, ever had any trouble um, booking accommodation, no. And there are the fact that you've got quite a lot of options. Maybe if the sheet's full, you might be able to stay in a and b nearby or find something else. And what about the GL20, Patty? 
if you want to stay in a refuge, you should book it in advance. And there is a website for that. The National Park website has um, a booking capability on it. You book, you pay your money, but then you must print out your receipts and take them with you. Otherwise, they have no idea who you are. They have no idea you're booked in. But they will have a list of the fact that they are booked up that night. So if you produce your piece of paper, you're in. The problem with doing that is if there's an enormous thunderstorm and you don't go out one day, you don't make it to your next booked refuge, everything falls apart. So I don't use the refuges. I used them the first time I did the GR20. I'm now on, I think, my fourth traverse. And I've never used the refuges since. It's much, much easier to camp. And you do have the option then of hiring one of their tents, which is already pitched and has a big thick mattress in it. So you just throw your sleeping bag on top or you pitch your own tent, which means searching endlessly for something that is at least less than 45 degrees and not made of bare rock. Um, so it's part of the fun, you know, is wandering around endlessly, trying to find somewhere you can put your tent where it's not going to be destroyed by the harshness of the ground or the spikiness of the vegetation. But no, I don't book anything because I don't know what the weather's going to be. I don't know if I'm going to be too tired at the end of one of the particularly hard days, you know, like day four, which is spectacularly difficult. If you find you, you just can't do another stage after that without a day off, then you need the flexibility. But on the GR20, there are hotels in places. There are private refuges. So you do have a bit more flexibility than just the official refuges and the, the very, very rugged campsites. One thing, Gillian, I, I wanted to ask. I learned that there are 47 types of chestnuts on Corsica. Oh, yeah. Have you eaten them all? <laughs> no, I, I confess I have a great weakness for their wonderful chestnut biscuits because, as you said, chestnut trees used to be really widespread because the harvest were very, very important. And you will often walk past little huts that are called the Szechuan huts where they put racks in them so that the chestnuts could dry out and then they would use them to make flour so it would last much longer. But luckily, they still do a lot of things with chestnuts, like biscuits and beer. You can get chestnut beer as well. I'm sure Paddy knows that. Chestnut cakes. They make chestnut flour. They just grind it up so you can use it for baking. It's wonderful. Yeah. They're, they're the most amazing trees. Yeah. You don't get them high up on the GR20, but you'll get them on some of my little low, lower level variants, you know, so. And and apart from the chestnut trees, Gillian, you're you're an expert in in the flowers around there, and there's loads and loads of plant life and flowers that are worth looking out for. Yes, the rock roses, the cistus, are very common in the lower in the Maquis, and then you've got lots and lots of lovely herbs as well, and lots of lavender. You'll have to learn the difference between French lavender and English <laughs> lavender. It's quite a different flower. And then there are little orchids along near the rivers where it's uh, damper and you get little insect eating flowers as well. Another thing that you both seem quite passionate about in the books is not taking too much equipment and how taking too much equipment can just make for a miserable trip. Gillian, do you want to talk about that? Well, I mean, how, what do you need? More than two T-shirts, change of pants <laughs> And, and a very lightweight rucksack. It's a matter of thinking, do I really need that? Do I really want to carry it with me? Mm. My cutoff point is usually four and a half kilos, including the rucksack and including a bottle of water, but that's only half a litre. 
I think it's very important. It's also a matter of safety. I mean, if you're tired and um, you've got a heavy pack on your back and you still have to get up, you know, the mountainside to where you're going and maybe the weather's going to turn bad, it makes a difference, I think, not having a heavy pack on. I mean, and Paddy, especially when you're on some of the more exposed parts, and you know, the GR20, having a heavy backpack is just a massive no-no, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the first trek I did, I took everything. And because I was going at the end of May, which I've already said, don't do it because of the snow and ice, I also had an ice axe. The fact I'd only be using that ice axe for maybe two hours in a month, because I'm checking all the alternatives as well. You know, most of the time I'm not on the snow and ice at all. But when I was, I needed the ice axe. So if you go at a time when there's no snow and ice, you definitely don't need the ice axe. If you're going to get your meals at the refuges, then you don't need pots, pans and a stove, you know, and that's a lot of metalwork thrown off to one side. But if you are going to cook all your own food and you are going to carry all your own food, it's suddenly going to be a, a monumentally difficult trek. You know, when it was first set up, the GR20, you couldn't buy anything for the first nine days without leaving the route. And now you can buy something every single day at the refuges. It might be basic, you know, a sort of stale bread and some sardines and some pasta, but at least it's food. But yeah, the first time I did it, I carried a big pack. I carried everything. And I learned very quickly, if I'm coming back to the GR20, I'm going to take less than half of this. You know, it's just all going to be left at home. Now, Gillian can travel very, very lightly because she has no need for a tent or sleeping bag or anything. But my tent is less than a kilo. My sleeping bag is 700 grams and a considerably thick mattress and airbed. Again, it's only like 500 grams for me. So it's only like two and a bit kilos is giving me that extra coverage that I need if I'm not going to be staying in a refuge. I'm going to be staying outside in a tent. I've got the cover there. It's good insurance to have two and a half kilos worth of gear just to cover you for any eventuality. And then after that, if you start piling things in, most of it is what I would call luxuries. You know, there are things you don't need, but people take them anyway. The less you take when you're on steep, rocky ground using your hands and trying to balance, the less you take, the better. I think that's that's just about time. One important thing that we didn't mention was uh, a film, Patty, that that you have talked about. Oh, yes. Yeah. Completely slipped my mind. Yeah. Watch Hiking Miracles GR20 on YouTube because I have seen dozens, if not a hundred videos about the GR20. And it's mostly people either complaining or having a whale of a time or jumping in pools and swimming or, you know, just larking around with their mates or just crying their eyes out. Hiking Miracles GR20 is just a couple walking the GR20. The guy is doing all the camera work and the drone work to get the aerial shots. And Clara Kuslova is doing all the walking. And it's absolutely absorbing. The music that goes with it is just made for that scenery. But it's well worth an hour of your time is watching that on YouTube. So when you're finished here, nip over to YouTube and, and check that out. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Paddy and Gillian, for joining us and sharing your presentations and uh, exciting and terrifying us in equal measure about the joys of Corsica. It has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you, both of you. Thank you also to Amy. She's leaving Cicerone this week. 
So we're really sad to see her go. Um, you'll be you'll be missed, Amy. Thanks to you to for listening to this latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. Let us know what you think by leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or by emailing us at live at cicerone.co.uk. We'd really love to hear from you. To keep up to date with the podcast, please follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app or provider. You can also listen on the Cicerone website, www.cicerone.co.uk, where you can browse our full range of guidebooks, read our articles and sign up to our newsletter. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. So in the meantime, search for Cicerone Press on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can also join our Facebook community group, Cicerone Connect, to connect with other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you soon.